So this morning I was grateful to hear Julie talk about simplicity because when Pastor Nathan asked if I would, I would cover this morning, I didn't really know what I was going to talk about. And as I was sort of praying about it and thinking about it, I thought to myself, you know, we're in the middle of Lent. There's still a few weeks towards till, till Easter. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear a lot about that last week of Jesus's life. And I got thinking to myself, you know, I'm, I'm not a professionally trained preacher. Like, I, I kind of know that I'm supposed to have three main points and an opening and a closing and you know but I'm like I said I'm not a professionally trained preacher so I never really do that so you just get what you get <laughs> when I'm when I'm filling in um, but I got thinking you know you can't go wrong if you just talk about Jesus and I said okay so why don't I I do that and I'm thinking well I'm a bit of a history buff, and I'm kind of a student of leadership, and at my house, one of the, my favorite biographies that I have is a four-volume set on the life of George Washington, right? And you can, you can, I understand fully that whoever the historian is that wrote that book, he's relying on facts that happen in history about a real person who interacts with real people in real time in a real place. And then what lessons I can draw out of that when it comes to leadership or politics or whatever, you know, that's kind of up to me. And you probably know where I'm going with this. We have a four-volume set of the Gospels that tell us the life of Jesus. And sometimes it's beneficial to just take a step back and not necessarily look at each little individual word or passage and sort of break that down and talk for half an hour or 45 minutes about that, that point that, that you're trying to make and to just step back and say, what is this all about? We say Jesus is our Lord and King. Where do we get that from? Like, how do we know that there's somebody that we should be calling a lord and a king? It's not something that somebody thought up. No group of religious leaders got together and said, hey, let's make a new god because these other gods aren't cutting it. it, didn't, it none of that had, there was a real person in a real place. And thankfully, we have a recording of that. Back in that time, right around the birth of Jesus, not only were the Jews, but also the Gentiles, there was a feeling of anticipation. Now, for the Jews, it might have been, you know, the, the um, prophecy in Daniel, right? They can count up years just like we can count up years, and they're thinking, oh, the Messiah must be coming right around this time. So they're on the lookout for it. And in fact, in those days, there were some false messiahs that claimed to be the Messiah. And it turns out that they weren't. And he, but even the Gentiles in that area, they were anticipating something. And whatever that feeling is, kind of like when Y2K was coming, remember our computers were going to crash and we were all, right? Something like that. There may, may have been a feeling like that. And I wonder why that was. Well, could it have been because there are two miraculous births happening in the same family? Mary and Elizabeth, right? Same family, miraculous births. So something is coming. And we start having angels appear. And the angels are saying, do not be afraid. Right? The Messiah is supposed to be up, a political upheaval. He's going to throw the Romans out. He's going to do all sorts of things. 
But the angels are saying, they're not saying anything about that. They're just saying, do not be afraid and trust in God. And we know the, the Christmas story, right? The birth of Jesus. And fortunately, we have Matthew and Luke to sort of walk us through what happened. They both have genealogies, right? All of us have ancestors, so does Jesus. And they walk right through, one through Joseph and one through Mary, but amazingly, it both works. We have angels and shepherds in this story, and it comes together with the birth of this baby in a manger. He gets circumcised. His parents bring him to the temple and, and offer the, the offering that was necessary. We have some wise men come from the east. Right? You know this story as it sort of, we look at it from a 30,000-foot view. But something really is happening at that time. So an angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, you got to get out of here and go down to Egypt. Now, if it's just... God, for whatever reason, saying, get up and go to Egypt, and we don't have any context for that, we could just say, well, that's just sort of a random thing that God did. But the reality is that the ruler where Jesus is born is King Herod. And King Herod was so bad that he killed his own wife, two of his sons, and 46 of the Sanhedrin, just because that's the type of king he was. There was real danger in a real person that this story around Jesus has to navigate. And so if God's will is you have to get up and go to Egypt, you have to do that. But we also have a real history, a real person that is going to have them go down to Egypt and fulfill prophecy and everything else that fits in God's perfect plan. And then they come back when King Herod dies. Okay, well, he was born in Bethlehem. Why don't they go back to Bethlehem? Well, King Herod's son, I had to write his name down here, Archelaus, he might have been even worse than King Herod. So they avoid Bethlehem, and they end up in Nazareth. Now, we don't know, so we've got the birth story. We don't know much about Jesus' childhood, do we? I mean, really, what do we know? Well, we do know that his family did make an annual trip for a Passover festival every year to Jerusalem. We know that. We know that at, when he was 12 years old, his family leaves and he lingers, right? He's, he's not being mischievous or disobedient to his parents, but he lingers. His parents come back to find him, and he says in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, he says, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And so we get this glimpse early on that Jesus knows what his mission is going to be. A mission that's going to end up in a cross or on a cross. A mission that's going to continue today through us. But at 12 years old, he already knows what his mission is. I'm three or four times that. I still am not sure what my mission is going to be. Right? And when his parents come back to him, what happens? He goes with them. He's completely obedient. And we hear, we learn in the, in the Gospels that he's obedient the rest of his childhood to his parents. And one other thing we know or we can presume to know about his childhood is that later on in Luke, it says, 
that he attended the synagogue, synagogue on the Sabbath as was his custom so we can sort of backtrack and understand that he probably was a, a regular attender at synagogue. Right? But other than that, what do we know about his childhood? Not much. And we can trust that if we don't know much, there's probably not much that we need to know. Otherwise, it would be in there. If you go outside the Bible, you can hear some fanciful stories about Jesus, like the Gospel of Thomas that's not actually a gospel and written by somebody else. and talks about how a child one time bumped into Jesus, so he you know, cursed him and you know, made him disappear into dirt or whatever. I don't know what he did, but that's not true. right? But if you want to search for stories, you can come up with some fanciful stories. But since we don't know, we can trust that we don't need to know. If we only had Mark or John, it would appear that Jesus comes out of nowhere. All of a sudden, there's this guy named John the Baptist, and he's, well, we call him John the Baptist. His real name was John. They didn't call him that at the time. John the Baptizer, he's baptizing people, and all of a sudden, here comes Jesus to get baptized. If we had Mark and John, that's all we would know. We wouldn't even know the birth stories. So it's a good thing we have Mark and Luke, or, or Matthew and Luke, because within the first half of the chap first chapter of Mark, Jesus is already baptized, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the good news. It starts right away. As soon as he gets baptized, right, the heavens open up and God says, this is my son in whom I will please, you, get, you know that kind of story. As soon as that done, that is done, right? He's ready to go, and what happens? Right to 40 days of temptation, right? Pulled right out of whatever is going on, whatever movement John the Baptist has going on, and all the disciples that are around, he's taken right out, and he has to be tempted. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and both Luke and Matt tell us, Matthew tell us, they say at the end of the 40 days, he was hungry. Now, I'm not sure that there's an English translation for exactly how hungry he was. Because can you imagine after 40 days, hungry might not be the description we would be able to use for actually how hungry he must have been. And he's tempted through all of it. You can imagine being broken down and desperate for food, and all he has to do is give in to the devil. And how does he fight the devil? With Scripture. He doesn't have to fight him physically. He doesn't fight him off physically. But every time a temptation comes through the devil, he counters with Scripture. It has to be Old Testament because there's no New Testament yet, but he counters with Scripture. Fortunately, we have a little bit more Scripture to fight the devil with. So he gets done with the 40 days, and now he is on the scene. His baptism probably made news. Anybody that saw that Holy Spirit come down must, have been a, must not have been able to hold their tongue and probably were telling people. So he's out there preaching and teaching, and he's starting to move around a little bit, and things are starting to pick up. And rather than doing some huge miracle, we'll get to those, but rather than some huge miracle, what's his first miracle? Changes the water into wine. Something simple. I would kind of envision like, hey, I'm getting everybody used to what is actually going to happen because you will not believe what is a coming. 
right? The heavens open up, that's amazing enough. But I'm going to start with, let's change some water into wine. He starts healing the blind and the sick. He encounters some demons. He's starting to throw them out. Things are starting to really happen. And now he's got a whole bunch of disciples, and he's going to call 12 of them. One of my favorite lessons in high school class is, can we name the 12 apostles? I won't ask you guys to do it right now, so I'll do it for you. We see that he calls specifically seven. In Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5, 18 to 22, he specifically calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? He's walking along the, the Sea of Galilee, and he says to, uh, he says to Peter, you know, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I don't know if I would just drop my whole thing if somebody comes by and says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, but if I knew it was Jesus, I probably would. So he gets those four, the first initial four. And then we see a specific call to Matthew, which is even, in my view, even better. He's walking along in Capernaum. He sees a tax booth, and he just looks at Matthew, or Levi, however you use his name. He says, follow me. And the tax collector follows him. And then in John, Philip, and Nathaniel, they get called in, in chapter 1. All right, but what about these other five? We don't see a specific call of them. We just know that they're in the list of the 12 apostles. We have Simon the Zealot. We have James, the son of Alphaeus. We have Thomas, somebody we can all relate to. You know, the guy, I just can't believe this. I've been with him for three years. I see all these miracles. I just can't believe he rose from the dead, right? Well, I'm, I'm probably more like that than I would like to admit. And then we have Thaddeus, or in some of the Gospels, uh, Judas, the son of James, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. Right? One of the Gospels says Judas, not Iscariot. And if I was Judas, I would want to be called Judas, not Iscariot, just to be sure I'm not that Judas. And so he's got his 12 apostles. He sends out 70 disciples. They go out and they do their, their thing. They come back. They're all excited because the movement is picking up. And he's got his 12 and they're casting out demons. And they're preaching the word. And they're not just preaching like you're hearing preaching today. Right? I'll stumble over my words and the brilliant thoughts that I have in my mind do not come out of my mouth that way. Right? And I'm trying to be chronological, but I might get the order mixed up today. Jesus is not preaching like that. Jesus is preaching like the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Introduction, three points, conclusion. That's not the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Any one of us can find something in there for ourselves. Right? That's more than three points just in the first part in chapter 5. Murder, adultery, loving neighbors, narrow and wide gates taking oaths, forgiveness, prayer, loving your enemies, treasures in heaven, false prophets, judging, worrying. You guys would be here all day if that was our sermon topic. So he's doing all of this, 
among all of this preaching and casting out demons and miracle working, Jesus says something that gets everyone's attention. He's in Capernaum, and the crowd is so big that people can't get to him. He's in a house. And four friends are carrying their paralyzed brother just to get near Jesus. And what can only be an incredible feat of mathematical triangulation, they figure out the exact spot above Jesus in the house, cut a hole in the roof, and lower the paralyzed man right at Jesus' feet. And what Jesus says is, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now all the preaching and all the teaching and all the miracle working, that's all great. But when he says, your sins are forgiven, now we have to make a decision. Is this true or is this blasphemy? Everybody there has to make a choice, and we all have to make a choice. Pharisees choose blasphemy. The crowds are amazed. They might not know it yet, but they're choosing truth. The crowds are so amazed that the, they, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It's got to be a viral hit. Now, what would most of us do if we have a viral video? We'd make a YouTube channel. We'd start a podcast. We'd figure out what TV shows we could get on. Let's keep this thing rolling, right? Let's get more popular. Let's start. We've got to get a website so we can gather all that money that's going to be rolling in from this viral hit that we have. But what does Jesus do? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us immediately after this amazing revelation, your sins are forgiven and a paralyzed man gets up and walk, walks, the very next thing Jesus does is goes and have a meal with tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't build upon this miraculous event. right? He doesn't hire a marketing team to help him. He goes and he eats with sinners and hangs out with them. doesn't go up into the temple with all the religious leaders to say how great this is. Look what we can do under the power of God. He goes to somebody's house and eats with those tax collectors and sinners. Now, they don't, the Gospels don't always follow chronological order, but here they do. And that moment, that forgiveness of sins and that healing the paralyzed man, that must be memorable to the people of that time that saw that almost as memorable as feeding 5,000 people with a piddling amount of fish and bread. Interestingly enough, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that appears in all four Gospels. All four of our biographers mention the feeding of the 5,000. It's so memorable, in fact, that one of the uh, symbols that early Christians use is the fish symbol that we sometimes see on bumper stickers today, right? There's a cross and there's the, the fish. There's other symbols as well, an anchor and stuff that they're all found in the catacombs of Rome, right? During the Roman persecution, the Christians developed some symbols to sort of show each other, hey, this is a safe place. So you etch a fish in your door and you know that if you're a Christian, you can go there. But it's 
Christian graffiti in the early, early centuries. But that feeding of the 5,000 must have been memorable. While Jesus is preaching and, and teaching the gospel, he's healing people, he's also leading by example. Right? He teaches these amazing things, sometimes in parables and sometimes not. And it doesn't seem to me like the parables are just for the people who hear it, who physically heard it in a real space in a real time. Those teachings and those parables are for us. You need a lesson in how to live in this world and relate to a, a secular government? Do you like paying taxes? Would it be great if the Bible told us you don't have to pay taxes? Probably. But what does Jesus do? He pays the temple tax. Now he's got a, a fish that has his, his money there. None of us have a fish pond where we can go dig out money from the fish's mouth, but he paid, the point is he pays the temple tax, right? There's a real civil government that he has to deal with and relate to, and he does, just like we have to as well today. And then if you really don't get it by seeing him pay the temple tax, you kind of, you want to come to him and trick him and say, hey, what are we supposed to be doing? And in Matthew 22, he gives us the old render to Caesar what is Caesar and render to God what is God. That coin, that's got Caesar's image on it. It must be his. Give it back to him. But your heart, what's that? That belongs to God. That's what you need to give to God. Do you feel like maybe you're misunderstood or that you're on the outside looking in? You don't fully understand what all of this stuff about Jesus is about? Well, in Matthew 13... Even Jesus couldn't preach in his own hometown. They knew who he was, and he couldn't do any preaching there because they're throwing him out. And the, Jesus says even a prophet is rejected in his own hometown. Some of us have had to deal with that sort of rejection by family members or friends because we believe. There's a Canaanite woman that wants her daughter healed, and she comes to Jesus and initially says, I'm, I'm sorry, I came for the lost people of God. And eventually he's, she makes the point. And Jesus says, yeah, your daughter's healed. She's on the outside looking in. And that's a subtle lesson, I think, for the people who are following Jesus, that maybe this isn't just for the chosen people of God. Maybe this is available for all of us. Jesus is dealing with centurions all the time. They are definitely not the chosen people. They're the oppressors. And yet he's still welcoming, saving their servants. So if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, there's a lesson for you there. Sometimes like we feel like we're not enough or that we're unworthy. Well, I'll bet that woman caught in adultery felt that way. Perhaps one of the most beautiful sections of the Bible. Jesus says, hey, whoever's without sin, you start throwing stones. And they all have to melt away. I'll bet she felt unworthy. 
how about that, that old woman with her offering that gives everything she has? She's the one that Jesus points out as an example. Not those that are making a big deal of it and showing everybody how much they can put in the offering basket. Greg can barely hold it, it's so heavy. That's not the person Jesus is pointing to. It's that widow giving everything that she has. Do we need strength? Of course we do. Right? Life is tough. We mentioned before that angels say, do not be afraid. But God tells, way back in Genesis, God is telling Abraham, do not be afraid. The angels are telling Mary and Joseph and Zechariah, do not be afraid. And Jesus tells the crowd, do not be afraid. And when he's walking on water, he tells the apostles when they recognize him, do not be afraid. He tells Jairus, do not be afraid, when Jairus thinks that his daughter is already dead. He says, do not be afraid, and he goes and raises his daughter. He says, do not be afraid to Paul. Do you think there's a theme there for all of us? Do not be afraid. Maybe you feel like you're lost. I know I have. Many of us have struggled at times trying to connect with the message of Jesus Christ. In those periods that we feel like maybe we are lost, do we remember there's a lost coin? There's a lost sheep? There's a lost son? Every time each one of those things is recovered, there's great celebration. Each time one of those lost things, one of those, that lost sheep and that prodigal son, when they return, that's the triumph of the gospel. But do we need humility? I do. And sometimes I wonder when I hear the prodigal son story, why I automatically gravitate to the one who left. When in reality, I might be the older son who stayed. How about the parable of the sower? Right, we can pick it up in Mark chapter 4, verse 16 through 20. Jesus is explaining the parable. He says, Others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So if we need humility, let's remember we may not actually be the good soil. Maybe we're that rocky soil. Right? And the only thing that's going to make soil better is opening our hearts and our minds to the gospel. 
mentioned before that Jesus is leading by example. Right? Not just his teachings, which we get enough of, but what he's doing. Right? He's circumcised. He's baptized. Why do we get baptized? Why do the Jews get baptized? Do those same reasons apply to Jesus? And he does it anyway. We mentioned he pays the temple tax. He dines with tax collectors and sinners. He willingly will submit to his executioners. He prays often and with great intensity. He washes feet. He's totally and, sub and, and completely submissive to his Father's will, leading us by example. And the whole while, he's gaining in popularity. He's proving himself to be the Son of God. Through all the miracles and all the casting out of demons and all of his teaching, they can't trap him, they can't capture him. He's gaining disciples, the word is spreading, and it's getting to be so popular that on Palm Sunday, he's going to approach Jerusalem and be hailed as the Messiah. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Here it is. The moment he's going to be elected president. And a week later, he's hanging on a cross. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to suffer unimaginable torture. He's going to go into the garden and pray, and he's going to be so grieved that he's going to sweat blood. Soldiers are going to come to arrest him, and there's going to be no battle. There's going to be no chase. Jesus is going to submit to the people who are eventually going to kill him. He's going to suffer the indignity of an unlawful trial. Hardly anything they did in the trials of Jesus was actually legal. He's going to be abandoned by the 12 that he chose. Some very publicly and very dramatically are going to abandon him. At the moment of his greatest need, his closest friends nowhere to be found. He's going to be tortured and he is going to die. He doesn't faint. He doesn't, mirac he doesn't revive himself. Nobody does CPR on him. He is dead. Three days later, he's going to arrive. Now, I would like to have gone into more detail over that last week, but we're going to be hearing that coming up. Today, I'd like us to focus on who it is that we are calling king. From that 30,000-foot view, all of that preaching, all of that teaching, all of that miracle working, in a real time, in a real place. That's who we're calling king. 2,000-some years later, still calling him 
Lord and Savior. You remember that George Washington biography I was talking about earlier? Fascinating history, if you're into history. Right? There's major international events, there's drama. It's four volumes, so there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, a lot of detail. There's some heroic behavior on the part of George Washington. I like history. I like the history in the Gospels. It's real. But there's something that I never seem to get by reading the biography of George Washington. You see, George Washington is a great leader in the world. Right? But let's be honest, not many of us actually sit down and have dinner with the mayor of our town on a regular basis. Some of us may encounter the mayor as supervisor. Not many of us are going to hang out with the governor of our state. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good thing, maybe. <laughs> Joel, how could I not hear you? Hardly any of us are going to be in a room alone and get to talk to the president of the United States. All of these powerful people, we cannot be close to. But when we read the Gospels that are actually historical events, don't you feel like you are close to Jesus? Yeah. I've been to Mount Vernon. You don't get any closer to George Washington. When we turn to the Gospels, we have sort of the same type of stuff. There's political intrigue. There are tyrant kings. Tyrant king that massacres a whole village of baby boys. We also have real miraculous births. We have moments that we can't fully comprehend in a human mind. We have a leader who can command the galaxy and at the same time wash his disciples' feet. There's calming of storms. There's walking on water. There's raising the dead. There's forgiving of sins. There's healing sicknesses, casting out demons, feeding 5,000 and then 4,000. There's the molding of 12 ordinary men into the leaders of a movement that's going to last from then until Jesus comes back. That includes us today. There's going to be a movement that changes the world that continues today. And we can be as close to that as we want. Who can compete with that? What four-volume biography of any leader can compete with that? What other God is able to compete with our God? Nothing else can measure up to that. I'd just like to remind you that in the coming weeks, right, as we think about and pray about and read about and listen about that final week in Jesus' life, right, his death, burial, and resurrection, the thing that gives us hope, the things that makes the gospel the gospel, I'd just like you to remember that that person, 
fully man and fully God, person of Jesus Christ, who lived in a real time, in a real place, among real people, and did real things, is as close to us as our very heartbeat and our very next breath. You know, all that stuff that Jesus did that we just went over, all those things that were recorded in the Gospels, perhaps the most important thing that we have to remember, is that Jesus forgives our sins. And it doesn't matter what you're holding on to, what shame you have, what you've done. Jesus needs you to forgive yourself because he already has.